When my kids were little, we had two morning rituals that we went through. If you've been around here, I go, I go over these a lot with you. But uh, there was two things I would say to my kids every uh, Sunday morning when they got or every morning when they got up. Um, the first is I'd go and I'd wake them up and I'd say, hey, you need to get up because today could be the best day ever. And like, you don't want to miss one second. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it got to the point where they'd go, yeah, dad, we know, best day ever, right. And uh, turn the light off. Um, and so I'd say, no, 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 it could be the best day, so you don't want to miss like one minute. Like, it could be the best day ever. Fast forward to uh, this week, my son John sent me a text uh, at around, I don't know, 7 o'clock or maybe 8 o'clock in the morning. He goes, today is likely not to be the best day ever. He said, I was supposed to be at my desk at 6 a.m. It's 6 a.m. now, and I'm still home. I overslept. And he said, I was in a rush to get on the subway. He lives in Manhattan. He said, I was on a rush to get in the subway. And in my rush to get ready and dress, I dropped my toothbrush in the toilet. <laughs> Likely not to be the best day ever. <laughs> Yet I continue. Caroline's 14. I keep telling her every day, it could be the best day ever. But here's the second thing I would tell them. Uh, as I got ready to go out the door, uh, I mean, I can still picture, you know, I, we were still in the same house that the kids all grew up in. Uh, we, have, we have a door, and then we have, like, the screen door. And they would stand there. I could picture them, all, each of them as little kids. And I'd give them this little speech about remembering who they are. Um, it was called, it still is called, the Remember the Name speech. Uh, I would go over there. I'd say, I'd say, look, before you go, I want you to know, remember who you are. Paul, when he's writing this letter to the Ephesians, that's what he spends half of the letter on, trying to get them to understand and remember who they are. He would say, in a sense, remember your name. I would say to my kids, you have to remember who you are. You're the son of John and Joan Eisman. You are the grandson or granddaughter of Carl and Adele and John and Carol. You are the great-grandson and great-grand... And I would tell them, your grandfather worked in a scissor factory his whole life in order to give you... This is your familial inheritance, in order to give you all that you could be and have today. So don't blow it. Remember who you are. And I think Paul is trying to get this across to each of us. Remember who you are. Because here's the deal. Who you are should flow out of whose you are. Who you are should flow out of whose you are. If I was going to sum up this book for you, this letter, it's not a book, it's a letter. Paul writes it from a prison cell in Rome. I showed you what that cell looked like a few weeks ago. He writes it to a small church in a, in, in a town called Ephesus. It's in modern-day Turkey. And what Paul would want you and I to know, this is our last Sunday in Ephesians in this, in this letter. The thing he would want you to hear and understand one last time as he sent you off on your way is this. Remember, remember your name. Remember whose you are. This is why Christianity is different than any other religion. Remember I put that chart up for you guys a few weeks ago. Christianity is the only thing that says this is, getting to God is not about works or, or doing more or trying harder or checking boxes. It's about the grace of God, the favor of God in adopting us as sons and daughters. This is why half of the book, this is why long before Paul gets to a list of do's and don'ts or rights and wrongs, the first half of the whole letter is trying to get us to understand who we are, which is determined by whose we are. And that's why when my kids left for school, I did not give them a list of things they should and shouldn't do. I didn't say, okay, the bus is going to be here in five minutes. Let's go over this one more time. Be kind to your teacher. Raise your hand. You know, don't throw the dodgeball too hard. Be nice to girls, but not too nice. Like, I didn't go over that every day. 
But what I did, I didn't, I didn't stick a set of rules in their lunchbox. Anybody ever write their kids um, notes in their lunchbox? What did you write to your kid in, in, in the lunchbox? What did you tell them? I love you. I'm proud of you. None of us write like lists of good behavior and stick it in our kids' lunchbox because we know something, that if they know whose they are, what they are, who what the name is, it might change the way they live their life. And so for me, as my kids left, I wanted to make sure they knew who they were. That's what Paul wants you to know as he writes this letter. Let me show it to you again, if, you, if, you, if we can go back to the first chapter, because it's so key to the rest of the book. Ephesians chapter 1, just in the fifth verse already, it says that God decided in advance to adopt us, key word in the whole book, to adopt us into his own family, right? This is just like my family, your family, to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do. Nobody twisted his arm. Why? Because it gave him great pleasure. We talked about this profound nature of adoption. What Paul is trying to tell you and I as we get ready to wrap up and walk out the door, the profound teaching on adoption. Yes, our faith is about being born again, but maybe even more so about understanding the nature of adoption. There's a wonderful couple in our church. They usually come to this service. They are not with us this morning because they are in Florida. They are awaiting the adoption of a baby. I talked to them this week. They got a sudden call. We got to drop everything. We're on a plane. We're in Florida. I, in fact, I communicated with them late last night. Um, I can't remember what, sometime yesterday about. And I said, where are you? What's going on? They said, well, we're, we're like in this room. We're waiting. We can't, we can't wait. We haven't heard anything. They're sitting on pins and needles. It's bringing them great pleasure to adopt this baby. This is what they want to do. And if you remember, there was a couple of things. I went through six of them, but the two that just struck me so much about the reason Paul wants you and I to realize you're adopted more than anything else, two things. One is adoptions have costs. My friends have left their jobs for the week. They paid for a last-minute fright to Florida. They put themselves up somewhere, not to mention that the average adoption in the U.S. is twenty-five dollars to $40,000. Being adopted has a cost associated with it. So did your adoption, the cost of God's only son, Jesus Christ. You were bought at a price. You're not cheap. You, you were adopted at a high cost. Now, the second thing that, that I think Paul would like us to understand about adoption is adoption saves us from bad circumstances and uncertain futures. The Rockefeller children, for example. I would have used the Trump children, but at this point, if you even say, say you know, I'll get half the church to walk out. The Rockefeller children, nobody felt the need to adopt the Rockefeller children because their present situation was pretty good and it was understood that their long-term um, situation was going to be all right. Not so for you and I, right? We are saved out of a present situation of our brokenness, right, where sin is just eating our lunches, and our future, a future separate from God, apart from God, right, we are adopted out of that. We are adopted away from a bad future and into a glorious future. Here's the third thing I thought about adoption this week. Never struck me before. It's, it's, I just I love the, the way the scripture comes together. Here's the third thing I want you to understand about adoption. Adopted kids have birth fathers. Adopted kids have birth fathers. And the birth father, much as you might not like it, 
hands down is DNA. A child might be adopted, his present circumstances might get much better than the lonely orphanage he's in, his future might be much brighter with a loving family and hopes for school and a career, but the DNA in that adopted child is still at work and it can still cause problems. The issues of the birth father don't just go away because the child was adopted. They're likely going to need to be dealt with somewhere along the line. You hearing me? And guess what? You and I are the adopted sons of the Most High God. That's the good, that's the good part. We're children saved from a bad present circumstance and promised a better eternal future. But you have a birth father. I have, a, I have a birth father, too. We have DNA issues, and they're going to need to be dealt with. Jesus was teaching about this, this concept of fatherhood and how it impacts our lives. Uh, in the book of John, chapter 8, he's talking to a Jewish, Jewish audience about fathers and inheritances. And, and, and Jesus challenged them on who their father was, and they said, well, Abraham is our father, and Jesus said, really? He said, well, if Abraham was, if Abraham was, um, if you were Abraham's children, then you would do what Abraham did. He's setting a precedent up there, right? Jesus is setting this precedent that children watch and do what the father does. If you were Abraham's children, then you would do what Abraham did. And he goes on, he says, he goes, as, as it is, you're looking for a way to kill me, Jesus says, a man who told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham didn't do such things. You see, you're doing the works of your own father. Well, they protested, much like you and I would. We're not illegitimate children. The only father we have is God himself. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me because I've come here from God. I haven't come on my own. God sent me. And this is why my language is not clear to you, because you're unable to hear what I say. And then church, listen to this in a very profound line. Um, in, in John uh, 8, chapter 44, or verse 44, he says this. You belong to your father, the devil. And see, you want to carry out your father's desires. He, he was a murderer from the beginning. He's not holding to the truth. There's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. It's in his DNA. He's a liar. He's the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. And thus the great question of the whole second half of the book of Ephesians begins. A question that some of you Yankee fans... Any Yankee, raise your hand if you're a Yankee fan. Go ahead, don't be ashamed of a couple bad seasons. I'm not going to judge you, all right? Now, if you're a Yankee fan, other than being front runners, um, it was just a mean John joke, uh, remember when Pedro Martinez would come and pitch uh, for the Red Sox back in the late 90s, early 2000s? And it would be the playoffs, the stadium would be packed, and the whole stadium started to chant this one question at Pedro Martinez. Anybody remember what that question was? <laughs> Who's your daddy? Over and over. Who's your daddy, right? Who's your daddy? That's the question that Paul's asking in the whole second half of this book. Who's your daddy? That's the final point. He lays it out in the second part of the letter in what I would call is a, is a spiritual paternity test for you. 
I wanted to get you something so you could kind of see this. So my goal was to get an actual paternity test and bring it and kind of have it sitting on the stage here. So I Googled paternity tests and you could get a paternity test at Walmart. So I was like, oh, that's cool. So I uh, took a couple of my kids last night, and my kids are older now, took them to Walmart. And uh, I said, hey, you want to come in with me? And they said, what are you getting? I said, a paternity test. They said, no, we're not coming in with you. And uh, I got into Walmart, and uh, you know, then where you would think they might have paternity tests, that's an aisle where you really don't want to be as the town pastor caught hanging around too long. Um, so I'm kind of trying to sneak in, look, at, look for paternity tests. Long story short, I was never able to actually find a paternity test. Apparently, you have to get one online at Walmart. But nevertheless, Paul is laying out in the second half of this letter a spiritual paternity test. Who's your father? Here's how he opens it up. In chapter 4, Paul, remember, writing from this Roman prison, he goes, look, as a prisoner for the Lord, I'm urging you to live a life worthy of the calling you received. This is me to my kids. I'm urging you as you walk out the door to live a life where your grandfather worked in a scissor factory. Paul's saying, I want you to remember, I urge you to remember who you are. What he's done for you. And then he goes on. He says in, in, in verses 2 to 6. This is what your call is. Be, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bear with one another in love. Make every effort. Now watch. You're, you're going to see something here that we've talked about. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That's a lot of unity. That's a lot of oneness. This is Paul. Remember we talked about this. This is the second key, first key principle is adoption. Second key principle is what has God been up to since he founded all of creation? That gigantic Greek word I gave you? Anakaphaliosis thigh. Anakaphaliosis thigh. This is the mystery that Paul reveals. He says, God has been up to in the world from beginning of time, and it's just being revealed now. Anakaphaliosis thigh. That God is putting all things back together again, the way they once were, the way they will always be. He's bringing unity and shalom and peace. All things are being united right under Jesus. And he begins by giving the example of Jews and Gentiles. There will no longer be two people. There will be one united people under Jesus. And so as we look at who, who we are and who we represent in the world that we, we live in, let me just say this before I go on. In your life, in your relationships, at church and at work and at home, let me even make it more personal if I can kind of put, you know, maybe, maybe step over a line a little bit. In your marriage, who's your daddy? Are you an agent of, of reconciliation, as Paul would say, or are you an agent uh, of anger and judgment and slander? Are you an agent of unity and forgiveness and oneness? Are you an agent of bickering and divisiveness? Because if your relationships, if you look at your relationships and they're just characterized all over the place by brokenness and fracture, nobody at work seems to like me and nobody in my family seems to like me and my, my relationship with my husband's not good. And maybe, maybe you're not an agent of this anacophelaiosis thigh. And you're an agent of a, you're a child of a different, you're acting out of your DNA, of, you're acting out of the DNA of a different dad. So Paul picks it up. He says this 
in, in, in verse 17 in chapter 4. He says, with the Lord's authority, I say this. Live no longer as the Gentiles do. We talked about what a Gentile is, right? It was anybody that was a non-Jewish person seen at the time as far from God. And how do they live? Well, here's how they live. Paul says, they're hopelessly confused. By the way, this is how we live, right? Before we come to know Christ, this would be the definition of, of us. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives them because they've closed their minds. They've hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. My goodness gracious, if you watch TV, whoo, there's a lot of no sense of shame going on. They live for lustful pleasure. They eagerly practice every kind of impurity. Paul says, this is how you lived prior to your adoption. They lived, we lived. You know who we lived like? Our birth father. See, the DNA, even though, we're, even though we get adopted, the DNA starts working itself out. It's in us, and what happens is we default back to it. We might be raised a certain way by our adopted father, but oftentimes we default back to our DNA position. We don't try to be lustful. I have never once gotten up and said, Lord, I'm going to the Rockaway Mall today. Would you like bring 20 hot women in yoga pants in front of me? I would never do that. I don't purposely seek lusting, but my DNA, my DNA can come out. See, we can act out of that, that, that place, that brokenness. We can act out of our birthright and not out of adopted sonship. We don't try to seek impurity. We don't intentionally lack shame. We function out of our family issues. This was our familial inheritance. Paul goes on. He says, since you've heard about Jesus, you've learned about the truth that comes from him, take off this old sinful nature. The former way you lived, it's corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, he says, let the spirit, this is a work of God, this is not your work. It flows out of a love for God and a relationship and a time with him. Let the Spirit of God renew your thoughts and your attitudes and put on your new nature. Wear your new name. Created to be your new nature. This is you. Created to be like God. Truly righteous and holy. Through the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, as you abide in and with Jesus, as he begins to become entangled in your life in ways we don't fully understand, his, his life entangling in your life, you're able to overcome the faulty family DNA handed down to you. And we become ruled by the Spirit, slowly at first, but incrementally over time, so that we continue to take off the old and put on the new. Specifically, what does that look like? See, Paul, Paul gets specific. What are the natures of our birth father and what are the natures of our adopted dad? Remember when Jesus was saying that lying was of the devil, your father the devil? Paul starts to make it specific. Here's what Paul says. He goes, okay, here's what this looks like. He says, stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth. We're all part of the same body. There's Anakophiliosis thiagon. And don't sin by letting anger control you. If you're a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good work and give generously to others. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. And he says, get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and harsh words and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ Jesus has forgiven you. 
He says, let there be no sexual immorality or impurity or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. And so I made you a little chart. Would you, Nancy, would you throw that up there? Here's a little chart. And, and you can look at this, and I'd ask you to think. Who's my daddy? Because here's what's in the DNA. Here's what you were born with. Here's, here's who you took after at birth. And here's what your adopted dad looks like. And here's what, what your new name, here's what your new name, how your new name should be lived out. Instead of lying, you tell the truth. You tell it in love and with kindness and gentleness. Instead of being controlled by anger, you deal with your anger. You don't let the sun go down on it. Instead of stealing things, I work hard and I give my stuff. You could go through. Instead of abusive language, and abusive language, sometimes we think that just means, oh, don't curse. And sure, there's an aspect of that that's true, all right? But really, the, what, what the scripture is getting out here is your language should be encouraging language, set on built, building people up. One of our elders had a thing with their kids. He would always ask the, their kid, his kids, are, is what, you, are what you're saying, is it building one another up? And one of his sons said to him one, another, one time, came and said, uh, hey, my brother, he's building me down, <laughs> Right? Is your language, is it building you? Is it building, are you building other people up? And you could go through it. Bitterness becomes uh, kindness. And, and rage is replaced with tenderheartedness. Harsh words and slander with forgiveness. Sexual immorality, impurity, and greed gets exchanged for thanksgiving. Dave Bolas, or Lieutenant Colonel Bolas, was here last week. If you remember, remember what he said? If you know who you are, you'll know what to do. Oh, I really like this guy. I've been waiting for so long to just meet the right guy. He's really good looking and nice hair, good teeth. Comes from a good family, great job. He cares about me. Oh, maybe I should just move in with him. Well, let me ask you a question. Who's your daddy? Because if you know who you are, you'll know what to do. Oh, man, that guy voted for Trump. How could somebody vote for Donald Trump? He is the most blah, 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 blah. She supports Hillary. How could you possibly support Hillary? Do you know how many times she blah, 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 blah. I am so ticked off. I am so offended. I've never been angry about anything in my life. I am going to take the Facebook and let him have it. Who's your daddy? What are you reflecting? Because if you know who you are, you'll know what to do. Jesus didn't say that people would know who we are, that we're his followers, by how, what we post on Facebook. Jesus didn't say be right. Jesus said be loving. So church, if they pull up your Facebook page, if there were a fly on the wall in your family room, if they heard your conversation at the water cooler on Monday, would they know who your father is? I have this... Uh, Physically, well, probably, probably not just physically. I have this really big head. I've talked about this over the years. As a kid, I had to go to this special equipment shed for football, you know. Um, 
You know, it's been the same size since I was like five, and I've kind of grown into it a little bit. This is a true story. And I remember when, when Joan told me she was pregnant for the first time, my first thought was, oh, dear God, please don't hand down this head. <laughs> I got, this is a, like this is an Eisman thing, right? It's like an Eisman characteristic, and I was afraid of w what it would do, right? I didn't want to burden my children with this noggin. Paul says, lastly, there's this one profound thing that is true of your dad. There's one single distinguishing characteristic that will be true of everyone who is a child of this new father. God would say that this one thing, this one family characteristic will be on display in every relationship that my kids will have on this earth. You'll know they're my kids because they look like this. Ephesians chapter 5 verses 1 and 2. Imitate God, therefore. Be like dad. In everything you do, because you're his dear children, live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us, and he, he offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Imitate God. Imitate your dad. My, my brother, I was the oldest kid, so I was kind of like, you know, the independent thinker. And then my next brother was Matt, and Matt was the biggest suck-up to my father on the face of the earth. I mean, my brother's here, and he can back me up on this. I mean, to the point of complete annoyance, Right? Like it'd be dinner time, Matt would sprint ahead of everybody, throwing elbows, because he had this, oh, I'm going to sit next to dad. Right? And so he'd sit down, plop himself down next to dad. And so, of course, being the older one and trying to be a little bit independent, I'm like, oh, I'm not doing that. I'll sit at the other end of the table. Right? This is how I became a cowboy fan, because my dad was a rabid giant fan, and Matt, oh, I love the giants too, dad. So I'm like, well, fine, I like the cowboys. <laughs> and so at dinner time, as completely true, and my brother will laugh at it. At dinner time, my mother would say, do you want any green beans? What's dad having? You know, whatever dad had, right? And Matt had to be, because he just wanted to be just like dad. And this is what Paul is saying. He's going, look, imitate, imitate God. Be like dad. And he, he, to show you what that's like, he points to the nature of Jesus. He says this best in a letter Paul later would write to the church at Philippi. He says this in Philippians. He goes, be humble. This is what your dad is like. You want to be like dad? Be like this. Be humble. Think of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. I came across a story that, that just shows this characteristic so well this week. He's a CEO of a big-time Fortune 500 company, and he pulled into a service station to get gas, when he went inside to pay, he came out and he noticed that his wife was engaged in what seemed like a way too deep conversation with the service station attendant. And it turned out that she knew him. In fact, back in high school, before she met her eventual husband, she used to date this man. CEO got in his car and the two drove off in some awkward silence. But he was feeling pretty good about himself when he finally spoke up and he said, I bet I know what you were thinking. I bet you were thinking you're glad you married me, a Fortune 500 CEO, and not him, a service station attendant. No, I was thinking if I'd married him, he'd be a Fortune 500 CEO, and you'd be a service station attendant. <laughs> See, there's this one profound family characteristic that, that God says gets handed down to his children. 
This is the family characteristic. Paul says, you have to have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. And what was that? Though he was God, he did not think equality with God is something to cling to. Jesus didn't run around telling people, I'm God and you're not. But instead he gave up his divine privileges and he took the humble position of a slave and he was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and he died a criminal's death on a cross. Paul wraps up this letter saying, guys, be like dad. Ephesians 5.21 and further submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Be like dad. Just like Jesus did, Paul says, even though he didn't have to, even though he was the superior in the relationship, he willingly lowers himself for the good of another. He submits to his Father in heaven. He sacrifices so that another may live. This is the family characteristic. It's not that we go to church. It's not that we vote a certain way or we give a certain amount of money. Paul would say, if you want to know what it looks like to carry the Christian name, you don't put it on your bumper sticker. You submit. And you sacrifice. Now, and then he gets specific. Now, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just going to tell you what he says. But if you feel something that goes, I don't like that, what I would tell you is it's probably because your DNA of the old dad, like, you know, the old father's DNA is at work in you. Here's what Paul says. Ready? He says, let me make this specific. Let me show you how this works itself out. He says, wives. This means submit to your husbands. Because we're all submitting to each other. Wives. This means that you would submit to your husbands as the Lord. Because the husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He's the savior of his body, the church. And as the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands and everything. And then he says, husbands, this means that you love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave his life for her up. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. Nobody hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. Here comes the word, folks. This ties it all up. One of the most profound verses. This is the great mystery. Remember what the mystery is? Anakephala iosistai, everything being brought back together in unity, oneness, wholeness, forgiveness, peace, shalom, all under Christ. This is a great mystery, but your marriage, Christian marriage, is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. Your marriage represents more than any single thing on this earth. Your marriage represents to a broken world, anakephala iosistai. Submission, sacrifice, nothing should reflect who we are, who our father is more than our marriage. This is what the family gene looks like. This is why God says he hates divorce. This is not who we are. I would say that to my kids. I still do, right? When they do something, I go, that's not what we do. This is not who we are. Paul goes on, I put a little chart together for you. He says, let me show you how this plays itself out. He says, wives, you should be willing to submit because this is what we do. This is who we are. This is we follow what, what Jesus did. He, he willfully submits. And husbands, he says, you should love your wife sacrificially. Okay, a couple things. Number one, man, if you have ever used this submission verse and told a woman that the Bible says that she should submit to you, you have not read the Bible in its full entirety. You are taking one verse and you're beating your wife over the head with it. 
That is not what the scripture says. The scripture says that there is a mutual submissive relationship going on and your wife is called on just as you were called on to submit and to sacrifice. Paul then says to the woman, he gives her a sense of what submission looks like and then he gives to the man, he gives to the husbands a sense of what sacrifice looks like. And here's what happens over time. People read what this sacrifice thing is and they go, yes, uh, I would be willing to take a bullet for my wife. Okay, that's... Wonder, that's very brave of you. You're likely not to be called to, though. So sometimes over the millennia, it's been like, yeah, but she just needs to submit because I'd be willing to take a bullet. Um, when, when the scripture talks about husbands and a selfless sacrifice, it says, you're of such value to me that I am willing to lay down my hopes and my dreams and my plans and my goals so that yours might come true. Because that's who we are. That's what we do. This is the new family. And see, see two become one. And a confellaiosis thigh under, under the headship. And, and then children. In the first century, what were children, what did parents think of children? What were they used for? Labor. Now, you know, they had some things right back in the first century. But... <laughs> This is an inversion. All of a sudden, it's fathers. You don't put your children in the field. You don't berate your children. You don't treat them as if they were slaves. Instead, you, you I'm jumping ahead, you, you nurture your children. What's a kid's first word? No or mine? I don't know. Whoever said dad, I've never met a kid that said that first. I got no and mine. Why? Because nobody taught them to clean up that DNA yet. It comes out, it's in them. And so here it is again, the inversion. Children, you obey and honor your parents. Fathers, don't provoke your kids. Slaves, I don't have time to get into slavery. This is not the Bible being an advocate of slavery. In fact, it's likely that the slavery here was not the kind of slavery you're thinking of. This is more kind of like a servitude type of thing. But, but Paul is saying, those of you that, that owe, you're in a relationship where you're servant, right, in that relationship, even when he's, your master's not looking, you serve him with respect, you revere him, you honor him. In fact, work like you're working unto the Lord. Respect him and serve him. And then he says, hey, masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Can you imagine? Masters, respect and serve your slaves. The first shall be last, the last shall be first, because this is who we are. This is what we do. The reason that many of our marriages and our families and our workplaces are such a mess is that we default back to our, our, our birth father's DNA. We demand to be right or to be first or to be respected, uh, to have our needs met, to be in charge. Paul says these things are not the mark of our new father. He says, imitate dad. Love your wife. Give up your hopes and dreams and plans for a submit to your husband. Respect them, even on Daisy to deserve it. Be gentle with your kids. Honor your parents for no other reason than your, they're your parents. Respect and serve those that are over you. And when you do, carry the name of Jesus so much better. When, when, you do, when you do that, people look. See, when you live this way, when you live this way, people will look at you and start to go, huh, I kind of see a resemblance. Even though he's not your birth father, I kind of see a resemblance to your adopted dad. And so, Ben, come up. I want to close with this. The second half of this book matters. There's no doubt. Paul gives us lots of lists, 
Lots of ways we should work now that we know who we are. Lots of, you know, just like we talk to our kids about what's appropriate behavior for who we are. But the church always, the church loves to default to the second half of Ephesians and not stay with the first half of Ephesians. We love laws and lists and rules. And we struggle with with acting out of a, a, a transformed heart and newness and love and relationship with God. And so this isn't the last time the church at Ephesus comes up in the Bible. Um, the guy that wrote the book of John, John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world, most famous verse. That same guy, sometime later, many years after this book was written, he finds himself exiled on a Greek island called um, Patmos. And while he's there, he's writing a book which comes to be known as the book of Revelations, the last book in the Bible. And while he's there, God says, I want you to take some messages to some of these local churches. And he actually writes, God writes a letter to the church at Ephesus. And here's here's what God wanted that church to know some years later in Revelation. He says, "Uh, church at Ephesus, I know your works. I know that you've labored. I know your patience. I know you cannot bear those who are evil. I know you've tested those who say they're apostles and they're not. I know you found them to be liars. You've persevered. You have patience. You've worked for my name's sake. You haven't become weary. And see, so what what is God saying to this church? He's saying, you've done the checklists. You've done the work, right? Uh, you're really good at being angry at people that are, are, are bad. That's all good stuff. But he says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You left your first love. You moved right over to the second half of that book. and you, Because that's our default mechanism. You moved right over to, i got to do stuff instead of i got to be with him. He, Paul, the, the, uh, God says to John, remember, therefore... Remember to the church, he says, remember where, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, or else I'll come to you quickly and I'll remove your lampstand. Church, don't make it about lists. Don't make it about being a better person. Remember your first love. Don't let the day come where, where God goes, you, were, you did a really good job checking boxes but I don't know who you are. And so we conclude where we began. Guys, as you walk out the door today, remember your name. Remember what he did for you. Remember how he loves you. Remember remember who you are. And then and only then, out of it, go and live wildly and freely and joyfully and abundantly Secure in the love and the knowledge of your dad. And so, Jesus, speak to us deeply, Lord, through this message of Paul. Help us to understand, Lord, whose we are so we know who who we are. Father, speak to us so so that that we would understand, right, How we act comes out of who we are. That that when we understand who we are, we'll know what to do. Jesus, in our relationships, in our marriages, maybe we need to go to somebody. Maybe we need to say something. Maybe it might be awkward. It's on a car ride home or over dinner. Maybe somebody needs to break the ice by saying, I have not looked like my father to you. It's time for me to start submitting and sacrificing 
and resembling my dad. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's close.